Welcome to Sing Coach Conduct. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison. I'm grateful you're here. In this episode, I speak with the founders of the Elephant Alliance, an organization aimed at preventing educator sexual misconduct. It's likely you or someone you know has been affected by this particular trauma. In the U.S., it's estimated that one in 10 students from kindergarten through high school will experience sexual misconduct by a school employee. This may be a difficult episode for some of you, so I want to be upfront. We do discuss situations where assault or abuse has occurred, but we do not go into detail about sexual acts. Please, please, please share this information with your family, friends, colleagues, your students. The first step in creating change is acknowledging the need for change. Thank you for listening. I'm so, so excited to have you here on the show. Uh, we have Mackenzie Bufus and Patty Sampson. They are part of an organization called the Elephant Alliance, and we're going to get into um, what you do and why your organization is important. But before we do any of that, I want our listeners to know about these two incredible women that are behind this organization. So just tell us a little bit about who you are, what your background is in education. And I guess, Patty, we'll just start with you. All right. Well- well, my name is Patty Sampson, and I am the director of bands right now at West Aurora High School in Aurora, Illinois, and this is year 29 of being a high school band director. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, which is a great band town, and uh, I went did my undergrad at DePaul University in Chicago and my master's at Northwestern in Evanston. So I'm, I'm pretty localized, you know, I've stayed in the Chicagoland area, but... Um, yeah, that's me professionally. Um, personally, I live with two rescued pit bulls and they are my babies. Oh. So that's what are their names? Joker and Bo. And it fits <laughs> them both. They're, they're just both sweet little dogs, actually sweet giant dogs. But Mackenzie, what about you? So I was born and raised in a town called Downers Grove, Illinois. And um, went off to get my undergrad at the University of Illinois, and I'm a percussionist, so I played in the percussion studio there and the marching Illini. And um, then I came right back home, which was not according to plan, but uh, (laughs) the job market was pretty rough. So um, I got hooked into teaching strings, which was also not part of the plan. (laughs) Um, and absolutely fell in love with teaching strings Mm. and fell in love with teaching middle school kids, especially. So I taught band and orchestra, um, grades four through eight in Downers Grove. Um, and then I had my babies. So I have three children at home who keep me very, very busy. And my main gig nowadays is that and the Elephant Alliance. So, you know, you said it wasn't my plan to come home. What was your dream? Well, it was the misinformed dream of a young person. Like, I wanted to have my own program, um, (laughs) wherever that may be. And and so, actually, I did. I was offered two jobs. The other one was in Shelbyville, Illinois, which is, it would have been me for 5 to 12 band. um, Or it was teaching strings. And um, a little bit was, you know, my husband or my soon-to-be husband was closer here, and ultimately that was the right choice for sure in many, many, many different ways. But um, yeah, I guess I learned to not make plans like that. Because normally when we try to make plans, they don't ever end up the way exactly we want them to go. But, you know, there are blessings in that too. So the Elephant Alliance focuses mainly on educator sexual abuse. In plain terms, 
What is it and why should people care about this issue? In plain terms, educator sexual um, abuse uh, runs the gamut from non-contact, like sharing of pornography or webcam sex. I mean, even just dirty jokes that are inappropriate for, I shouldn't say just dirty jokes, but dirty jokes that are inappropriate for that age. Um, and, and, it, and it can run the gamut all the way up to um, molestation and rape of children by educators. And the reason people should care about this is one in 10 kids report in this country, K through 12, report being the victims or targets of educator um, sexual misconduct, which is 5.7 million kids. And that's why people should care. Do you think that's surprising to people to hear that number? Do you think a lot of people don't believe that that's true? A hundred percent. In fact, at Christmas, it was a lovely Christmas dinner conversation, but um, we got somehow we got on the topic of it at Christmas dinner. And I said, one in 10 kids in this country. And my brother-in-law pulls out his phone, he starts Googling and he goes, that's almost 5.8 million kids. And I go, I know, Brian, you know, I mean, I like, I know. And that's, and he goes, that's crazy. So yeah, people are, even I am still astonished by those numbers. Mm. So what is the story behind the Elephant Alliance? Like, how did you get into this where, um, I mean, it's not something I think you just wake up one morning and go, I think I'll study about educator sexual abuse. So uh, how did this come to be? I think it's something like, like uh, you would not be surprised that we have personal firsthand experience that really drew us to this topic. But um, it piggybacks perfectly off of your first question because... We, uh, Patty and I, shared this suspicion that this is happening way more often than people realize. Um, and we just, we knew in our hearts that it was a rampant problem. But we, at the time that we met, we didn't have the research to back that up. So we were just talking, um, and anecdotally, just between the two of us, we knew of so many educators who had committed misconduct with students. Mm-hmm. And we just thought this can't be right. You know, like there, there is something majorly wrong here. Um, and why isn't anyone talking about it to teachers, especially? And that's how we got our name, because this topic, although it is a rampant epidemic problem in our country, it's the elephant in the room. And, um, you know, Patty and I being music teachers, we felt most comfortable talking to music teachers. And we also suspected that music teachers commit misconduct more often than other teachers. Um, So we started talking to music teachers and we called our very first session uh, the elephant in the room, um, you know, preventing educator sexual misconduct. And um, and it it grew on its own because of the research that we did and what we learned and. Unfortunately, we've confirmed all of our worst suspicions um, about the frequency of this occurring and um, and the lack of information available. Um, so we just decided if if no one else is talking about this, why not us? And why not now? We uh, met. We did not know each other. I knew of Mackenzie's husband because he is also a high school band director in the area. And uh, we met because one of my former students had made a post. She's now a music educator. She had made a post on Facebook about a teacher. 
And I commented and said, oh, I've been thinking about doing a session, a professional development session. I'm calling it the elephant in the room. And this woman, Mackenzie, comes in and says, I've been working on one and I'm calling mine the elephant in the room. And that's literally what happened. And then we met and we had both started doing research. But when we got together, we really started researching and combining and writing. And it was the good thing that came out of this is that we met, we've started this, and now hopefully we're going to make a difference. And you both had the exact same idea for the title. Like you were both saying, this is what we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was, one of us was going to call it the elephant in the profession. Mm, and the mm -hmm. other one was the elephant in the room, but it was the exact same idea. It was the Facebook post was a pretty high profile uh, case in Illinois a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, it garnered a lot of attention because this person was fired from their teaching job and then immediately scooped up in the music education world. And um, oh, just wow. Kind of By was, another yes. school district, they just jumped right in and took this person. Yes. And the reason I bring this up is because it happens all the time. And um, and we call it the broken system uh, that really what educator sexual misconduct is, you know, um, but yes, we we decided to do. And it, originally we were just going to do one session in our home state at our state music conference. And uh, we finished that and we had the response that we had and we realized that this wasn't going to be it. Um, mm. And I mean, I think, Patty, I don't want to speak for you, but I had this feeling like I'm going to talk about this with anyone who will listen mm -hmm. <laughs> and until the day I die, you know, because <laughs> we need to we need to prevent this. So. Yeah, this isn't something that you just um, <laughs> you just say, well, I'll do this for a couple weeks or a couple months. I mean, this really is something that you take on. And uh, something that I've been thinking recently about is that there are um, there are societal issues that are very deep seated and that could take generations to to heal like racism. This is something that can be um, improved today, right now. I think that is one of the um, hopeful things about this. And you can see that yes. difference. You can protect people right now. So thank you for sharing that. And I understand, Patty, you actually have some experience with reporting uh, an educator. Is that correct? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so this school, I work at West Aurora High School, like I said before. And it's literally one of the oldest high school band programs in the country. And... <clears throat> like I said, I grew up in Joliet, which is about, I don't know, 20 miles away, 25 miles away. So I grew up knowing about actually the West Aurora uh, band and the East Aurora band. I mean, both just these powerhouse band programs. And so when the job opened here, I thought, oh, I won't even get an interview. It was like one of those jobs here in Illinois. And the head director at the time was somebody that I respected a great deal. He's a, was a phenomenal band director. And I thought, Oh, it'd be great to work with him. And the first week I started working with him, I thought something is not right here. He just, the way he spoke to girls, the way he spoke about girls. Um, he was very secretive about certain things, but you know, in your mind, you want, you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be somebody who's suspicious or jaded, whatever. So I kept working with him, but that it just never went away. And there were times that he would be texting and texting and texting. And I'd be like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? And it was as if I didn't even speak. 
And my suspicions kept growing and kept growing. And then I knew because of as many of these predators, most of them are very charismatic. He, he ran this school. And when I say that, I'm not being facetious. He was very, very much probably the most powerful teacher in our district. And I knew if I didn't catch him that I could potentially lose my job. That I mean, all sorts of things. So I set about to catch him, and I did. And I actually walked in on him um, and reported him. And uh, I, I, at the time, I think that the law said that we, we, as mandated reporters, we had to report. But I don't think it specifically said we had to report to legal authorities or to the Department of Children and Family Services. I think there was this little loophole that said you could report to someone in your building. So I knew, however, that I needed to tell a legal person, like a police officer or Department of Children and Family Services. So I went to my administrator and I said, I'm only telling you because I want you to be warned because when this gets reported, it's going to be big. And... They tried to and talk you caught me this out of person reporting. you caught this person red-handed doing something yeah oh, oh yeah mm-hmm. okay so I they wanted to handle it quote in-house and I said I'm not handling it in-house I'm calling the police and luckily they backed me up and he was subsequently sentenced to 12 years and he served seven and he's out now lives right back here in Aurora so yeah. It was pretty rough. Well, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, too. You know, I, my question a lot of the time is, like, what stops people? And I think fear, there, there is that fear, number one, right, of, like, am I really seeing, we sort of gaslight ourselves, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? And you said he was saying things, he was doing things. Um, do you mind getting into a little bit more detail? Yeah, I can give you some great examples. Um we had a, uh, you know, like most schools, student assistance for kids, especially a junior, senior, maybe has com- completed a lot of their required coursework and they have a free period. So we had this girl, she was a, I think she was a junior my first year here, and she was our student assistant first period in the morning. And he's, he would ask her questions like, okay, so my girlfriend and I were sitting on the couch last night and he started asking this 16-year-old girl dating advice. And I would I would look at him and I'd say, you, you can't talk to kids about that. And he would just ignore me. Girls would come in in the morning. And I don't want to use his name. But Mr. Butthead, um, I got your text last night. And <laughs> I got your text last night. Did your girlfriend end up making you sleep on the couch? Or were you able to sleep with her? And I would, I would be like, I would say, what are you doing? You know? And, and again, it was if I didn't even speak. Um, and he would be texting kids in class and he would take, there was one girl in specifically that was in my band because we have several concert bands. So I'd be teaching and he'd come in and get her and just take her out of class like three times a week, four times a week. And I'd ask him about it. And again, I'd say, hey, why do you keep taking, you know, this girl out? And he wouldn't even acknowledge that I spoke. 
I mean, it would ju- just ignore me. And then when I did catch him talk about gaslighting, he tried to tell me they were just talking. And after what I saw, I thought, well, I don't usually talk to people like that in that position. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are just a few. And, you know, there was some there was one girl we'd be meeting. There was three there's three band directors at my school and we'd be talking in the morning about the day or an event coming up or making our plans, right? Just talking through the day. And the second she walked in the room, he would just dart out and be out in the, in the band room talking to her. And during lunch, we have uh, jazz classes that meet during lunch study hall and the kids just eat and we have a a separate jazz room and they eat in there. And he would go in there and ask the kids to sit on the floor with them while they ate and they would talk and, um, I can tell you, I, there were times, you know, the marching band, our marching band is voluntary and part of the, the carrot that we hold over them to get them to join marching band is that's the group that travels. And so I, kids would show me pictures in the morning, like, oh, last night, Mr. Budhead came into my room and look, and they show me pictures of him in bed with little, with girls now, at the, in that moment, the, he was not sexually abusing them. However, he was grooming the entire environment so that everyone would think that that was normal. And people did. My second interview here, I walked in the room, he came over and he hugged me and kissed me on my forehead. Like, I knew him professionally, but I did not know him personally. And so... That's what he did. He literally would do things in front of other teachers, in front of parents, in front of other kids to make, to normalize it. Mm -hmm. And, and then if anybody ever said anything, like I had a girl come in one time and say, um, Miss Sampson, do you know how Mr. Budhead always kisses girls on the forehead and on the cheek? And I go, yeah, because it was something that I told him he shouldn't be doing. Um, she's like, well, he just kissed me on the lips and that's what he would do. He would just systematically push the envelope right in front of other people. And you would, and we talk about this in our, in our talks, he would lit, people would literally defend him before there was an accusation. Oh, you know how he is. He just hugs and kisses everybody. But the truth was Mm. he hugged and kissed women and girls Mm. and he made it look normal. Just to emphasize what Patty said, that we call all of those behaviors environmental grooming, um, and it's how the abuser sets the stage for the abuse. And although Patty had those specific examples, um, it was like the Twilight Zone reading about them in a textbook later, you know, on, on childhood sexual abuse, because this kind of behavior is so common um, with educators who go on to abuse kids. Um and just, I just want to stress that although those are specific examples, those are examples of these behaviors that we see time and time again in almost every single instance of an educator taking advantage of their students. Mackenzie, talk to me more about grooming because this is a word that, you know, I, I really didn't hear growing up, um, you know, until I was an adult. Um, and I... I think that there might be some misconceptions about what grooming looks like or just, just a lack of understanding in general. So could you just sort of walk me through 
Um, what is grooming? Like, what is the purpose of it? What is, you know, maybe the definition or, or what you've come to learn about it? And then what are some signs of grooming in general that people could look out for? Sure. Yeah. And just by the basic word grooming, we use it in many different contexts to as to prepare someone for something. You know, you're being groomed for the job, you're being groomed for the interview. And um, in the case of childhood sexual abuse, grooming is the behavior of the predator to um, overcome the child's resistance um, and then minimize disclosure or reduce belief. And we we usually hear the word grooming talking about how a child is um, groomed into submission. Um, it, it, I would like to use the word brainwashing because that's essentially what's happening with uh, when an adult is trying to sexually abuse a child or an adolescent. Um, they are just kind of, um, they're treating the child as special, uh, telling the child that they are unique, that they are mature, that they're wise beyond their years. They are telling the child what that child wants to hear. And they really just slathering on the attention and the affection. And of course, attention and affection is like an addictive substance to a child or an adolescent, especially if it comes from a teacher that they revere. And um, while that teacher is doing that, they are also working to isolate their target. Um, and we use the word target in interchangeably with the word victim because Target is such a great descriptor of what's actually happening. The, the predator is targeting a child. So they start isolating their target and they become that target's entire support system. They don't want the targeted child to have close friends that they can confide in. They don't want the child to be telling their parents about their problems. They want the child to tell them. They want to become that child's entire universe. And that works extremely well in terms of protecting the abuser from any allegations that come out. And then, of course, they are pushing the envelope. Um, you know, they are systematically desensitizing the child to touch. So it starts as what Patty was describing, you know, a kiss on the forehead, a hug. Um, maybe they're giving high fives that turn into hand-holding or rubbing up against the child or doing these kind of, like, things that seem pretty benign. But what it's doing is it's getting that child ready for the next step. Um, and uh, also testing the kid's ability to keep secrets um, with non-sexual things first, but then it escalates pretty quickly. So you might have an example of, if we're going to talk about high school band directors still, since that seems to be the theme of the night, um, you know, oh, can you help me with some filing after school today? And then that becomes pretty quickly, oh, let me see you without your shirt on. You know, and it, it's just that same to the student, to the child, that's the same ask. It's just doing a favor for someone they love. Um, but that is the grooming process. And that's how it happens with with an individual. Uh, in the meantime, of course, that student feels like they're in this loving relationship because they've been brainwashed to believe that this is true love. And this is um, this is how that feels. It, in a lot of cases, it's their first romantic experience or sexual experience. So it can be extremely confusing for the child. Um, and that, that I think covers the grooming process for a kid. But the most important thing that we talk to people about is the environmental grooming, because that is what we can actually see in the environment um, and what we can catch, if that makes sense. 
Sure, because they're just not, they're not only grooming the child, right? If I'm understanding this correctly with the environment, they're grooming, like they're setting up an environment that protects them, like this ecosystem where it's like, it's normal. That's, oh, that's who that, you know, he, that's what he does, you know, and then everybody just sort of like accepts that behavior. Um, So is that, am I understanding you correctly when you're talking about that environmental sort of grooming? Is that what you mean by that? Yes. And we call that the safety net um, because they are trying to be as charismatic as possible. Um, We just talked to a school district where the predatory teacher uh, served on as many committees as possible. Um, And he touted this to his coworkers as like, if it was between you and me, they would choose me because I'm so invaluable to the school because of my service to the school. And seriously, they, they try to make themselves so important and so invaluable and such a nice guy that if any allegations came up, no one would believe them. And <laughs> Patty and I know from firsthand experience, this process is extremely effective. Oh, yeah. When when I did finally, you know, catch this my co- former colleague and I... I had people, because he grew up, he went to this school, he grew up in this community, he went off to college, came back, and became the band director here. And the program had started to take a bit of a dip, and when he started, he he was a great band director, and he really, I mean, the program blossomed and flourished under him. So, but he was a local boy, went to the same church from the time he was, you know, a year old till adulthood, and so... I had people saying to me, he's such a nice person. He does so much for the community. He does so much for the kids. How could you say that? And this was, you know, years ago before I knew really anything about the grooming process. And I remember once saying to a man, he said to me, he's such a nice guy. And I go, well, who do you think is abusing kids? Do you think they're going to go off and be with a jerk? No, they're with that charismatic person. They're with that person that everybody loves Mm. and that's true we talk in our presentations all the time about dismantling misconceptions that's one of our you know big key points and um that's one of the biggest and most important misconceptions that we can dismantle is who a sex offender is or who a you know child predator looks like because everyone pictures the scraggly creeper in the park with the trench coat. And <laughs> it's not. It ain't. No, it's the no. opposite. You know, it's it's always the the most charming, charismatic. Um, and a lot of these people are excellent teachers. Um, and that's really, really difficult for people to reconcile the difference between that great teacher and what they've been doing to kids. So Right. Now, of course, there are... The creepers, you know, there are the guys that are are what everybody thinks of when they think pedophile. Um, but in fact, just the like the other day when Mackenzie and I were speaking with the school district, that's the first time we both felt like this predator is actually a true pedophile. Most of them are not pedophiles. A pedophile has a mute, uh, exclusive attraction to prepubescent kids, and most of the um, uh, of the predators don't have that mutual dis. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Exclusively mutual attraction. So, and of course, but that does happen. There are violent circumstances where a teacher will violently do something, but 
the vast majority, I would say 99%, and of course I'm just making up that number, but the vast majority are what we law enforcement refers to as compliant victims because they do go along with it because they think they're in a loving relationship because they have been groomed so effectively. Yeah. And they're not, they're not those pedophiles. Um, and that happened in my town, um, where the, the band director was accused of sexually abusing kids over the course of 17 years. And the response of the community was, he's not a pedophile. And then they, you know, didn't think it was even possible, but that's another one of those huge misconceptions. Like he's not a pedophile, but that doesn't have any implication for whether or not he could abuse kids, you know, that he's, he's still abusing students, even though he's not a pedophile, if that makes sense. Sure. I think you call this, um, is it like an opportunistic predator? Is that the correct? Yeah, we call them opportunistic abusers. And um, these are the people who are usually targeting adolescents, um, you know, remembering that a pedophile has a sexual attraction to children 13 and under. Anyone who is abusing an adolescent is not a pedophile by definition. Um, And sometimes they have marriages and children and they maintain family lives all the while they're abusing, uh, sexually abusing kids at school. But let me be clear, an opportunistic abuser doesn't just fall into an opportunity. They manipulate everything. That's where the environmental grooming comes in. They Mm -hmm. manipulate everything that goes on within their realm to create the opportunities to abuse. Were you nervous when you, you know, you made the decision that you were going to do this Elephant Alliance thing and you were going to put on this presentation when you went into it, um, maybe especially in the beginning, uh, did you have some fears about that? I did not. I don't know about Mackenzie. I was ready to kick some butt. Well, (laughs) yeah, I I think, um, but come on. I remember before our first session, I remember we, even when we wrote the session, I had this, um, I don't know, I had this need to make sure that it was extremely research-based because I was afraid that people would um, kind of attack our credibility or doubt what we were saying. Um, So almost everything that came out of our mouths in that first presentation was backed by a study that I could rattle off uh, because I just had such a... I was predicting that people would kind of push back more than they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what we found was just a total acceptance of what we were talking about. Because like I said before, you know, we have these specific examples, but if you've experienced anything like this, or if you've known someone who has committed misconduct, the stuff that we're saying, you know, the audience is like, oh yeah, yep, yep. It's like, you know, going down a list of checks boxes. Um, so we didn't have to do as much um defense of our presentation as I thought we would. Is that what you were asking when you said like we were afraid of it or what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I I just wondered if you were going to get, you know, pushback, if you were worried about getting pushback or people were going to say, I don't believe you because again, it's interesting that we don't seem to acknowledge as a, as a society openly that this is a, this is a problem. And I know that, you know, when I was young, um, I thought that I was the only person that this was happening to. I was growing up in this vacuum of nobody else has ever like had a relationship with their teacher and then come to find out as an adult, there are so many women around my age that had the exact same situation going on. And and so I just, 
I just find it interesting that there's this weird sort of um, this chasm between acknowledging what we know behind the scenes to be true or many of us know because we've had experience or know people have had experience and then what society is willing to recognize um, as being accepted as a universal truth. And so when you go into this presentation, yeah, I was wondering, are you thinking, oh my gosh, are people going to say we're not being truthful? We're exaggerating, right? Because this is another thing that victims get, right? Is that you're exaggerating. That's not really what happened. That's not what this person, you know, did. And you do that to yourself too, because there's no way, you know, that you think this person who you care about would ever be, but we'll just say a bad person, you know, just in a very general terms. But um, Mackenzie, have you known anyone, because you didn't really talk about your experience, or if you've known anyone who has experienced um, sexual misconduct with a teacher? My high school program, um, in 2017, allegations were made about the one of the two band directors um, and it was definitely the same kind of situation that Patty described where it was, um, we call it in our presentation, blatant normalization. It was hidden in plain sight. In other words, it was kind of this open secret within the students and parents of the community. Um, but finally, uh, spurned by the Me Too movement, I believe, um, someone made a public allegation about this teacher and it snowballed and all of these allegations starting com coming forward. And so as it turns out, there's probably six or seven um, women who have come forward uh, with this particular teacher having been victimized by him or targeted by him. Um, and I can't say much more about that because mm -hmm. uh, unlike in Patty's case where the predatory teacher was caught and faced consequences and it's all kind of on the record books, that has not been the case so far. Um, for ours. So, but definitely, yes, firsthand um, experience and certainly observing all these, um, all the environmental grooming and individual grooming that we've been talking about. Um, have you talked about your experience on this podcast before? No, I have not. I have written about it on social media. My abuser groomed me so successfully that I truly believed that he loved me. I was in love with him. And so when he took things to a um, physical level, for me, it felt so genuine and natural. Like, well, I mean, obviously it got to this point, right? Because look at how well we get along and we connect and nobody understands what we have. And so I went 20 years not knowing that anything was wrong. I thought this man was a great teacher. And I do want to talk about that, too. I don't want to forget to bring up the fact that when we use the language of teacher or saying somebody is a great teacher, I definitely want to want to circle back to that. But, yeah, I just didn't I didn't know. And so the first day that I knew something was wrong was when my husband came to work um, came to my workplace and he showed me an arrest article. He showed me his mugshot and that was extremely traumatic. Um, my life was really never the same after that day. And even then knowing that he had been arrested for pornography and sexual abuse, I did not believe that I was a victim. I thought I, I could not because all the memories that I'd had with this person when I was young they had formed this idea of, you know, who this man was and what the relationship was. And you can't then go back and just insert new feelings into a memory that is so ingrained into your mind and your body. I don't know. So it's, for me, I would wonder how many people out there really 
didn't have any idea. They really thought this is real. And yeah, I was that's just going to say that. Well, I mean, like when we think about that one in 10 stat, we have to keep in mind that like one in 10 kids are abused by a school personnel. It, like that was on a survey and it said, were you the recipient of unwanted sexual attention from a teacher or a school employee? So, you know, like if you were filling out that survey as a high school student, you would not have checked yes, right? Based on what you just described about the grooming process. So um, I hate that question. I hate it. Like being having been involved in that process, one of the first things they ask you as a victim of sexual abuse, rape or what have you, they'll say, did they force you? Were you forced? Yeah. And and I just want to scream every time I mm -hmm. hear that. It's like, why would that person force you when they can get you to lie down willingly? Right, right. Because and it then, might take three years to do it, but they can do it. That's right. That's right. And so that's, but that's where I wish the justice system would catch up is that that question of did they force you? Fine. You know, you have to ask that. But then beyond that, you have to understand that that's part of the game is that they don't have to do that to you at all. And right. we have to recognize that. So you're right. You're absolutely right. I would not be able to check that box because I felt like a willing participant in everything that happened. And so later that became part of my guilt. I got this man in trouble. This is my fault. And how could I do this to this person that I loved so dearly? And now look what he's done. You know, I blamed myself. Like, look, I was the start of it. And who even knows? You know, it's like statistically, statistically speaking, how many students do abusers abuse over the course of however long? I mean, would you would you have any statistics on that? Well, it's impossible to know. Uh, you know, we had one study that say up to 73 victims and uh, the average wow. is three, they move through three school districts before they get caught on average. But um, we've read that that's kind of an impossible statistic to know because we only ever read about the one that they got caught with. Um, and it's very unlikely for a, um, a, a ch child sexual abuser to admit to previous crimes um, that, that they weren't caught for. So it's really impossible to know how many uh, targets each one has, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I have so many questions for you all. You're so educated in this and you've, you know, not only have you studied this, but then you have also spoken to so many people doing your presentations. And so I, I'm trying to remember all my questions. And I guess my first one is, what is the difference between a person who is a great teacher and has a close relationship? Like we've, I mean, I was the kind of teacher where I would hug my students. I would do it openly you know, I would, I would maybe put my arm around them. I mean, and certainly I look back and go, I could have done this better or I should now, especially that I'm really aware of all of this. What is the difference between a teacher who just maybe has a lapse in judgment or makes a mistake or should, you know, they should have done something better as opposed to a person who is a predator? How do we recognize the difference in that? Great teaching versus someone manipulating an environment is really yes. what you're asking. So, mm -hmm. I, um, we, we often say, please don't start looking at these different traits as, oh my gosh, I'm that person. Because like, if you were to ask kids, um, at, that I have taught, they will tell you that I, I do hug. I, I tend to do a side hug. You know what I mean? Like I don't do a full, but, um, it all really comes down to intention. 
Like, what is the intention of this act, of me hugging, of me talking to this kid? And the problem is, is you cannot see someone's intention, right? But when you start seeing warning signs, one or two, you know, so a teacher hugs, that doesn't mean anything. But when you start putting it in context with all the other um, different uh, symptoms, I don't know, what's the right word, Mackenzie? The, uh, indicators. Indicators. That's when you can start. But, like, I'm just going to use myself for an example here. I've been a fairly successful high school band director. Uh, my bands win awards. I was named you know, teacher of the year last year in my county and, you know, things like that. And when you look at a predatory teacher, often they have those same things. Like they win every marching band competition, every jazz competition, and they do all these things. And they're very charismatic. And most of us who do teach music are care. We're performers. Of course, we're going to be a little bit more charismatic. So you have to look at, okay, what is the intent why is that person doing this? And then you have to start looking at all the other indicators together. Just because I have won awards doesn't mean that I am winning awards so that everybody will love me so that I will be able to abuse a child. Mm. Yeah. In our, in our sessions, we have a list of red flags. Um, and it's also posted on our webpage. Um, and there are a couple really big ones that we, we can point to and say, this is an indicator of environmental grooming, you know, like keeping secrets about meetings with kids. That's a huge one. Uh, there's a couple other of those really big, obvious signs, but, um, and by, can I interject real quick when you, when she says keeping secrets about meetings with kids, like if you see a teacher and a, and a student leaving a room all the time, at the same time or every other day together and you say, Hey, what are you, are you tutoring that kid or what's going on? And they, they lie or they, or they say, Oh, I wasn't in there with them. If they lie about it or if they give you some bogus answer, that's a big indicator. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of the things that we want people to become more emboldened about is calling out violations. So, like I live in Aurora. Aurora is, a, is the second largest city in Illinois. However, where I teach on the west side, it's like freaking Mayberry. Everybody knows everybody's <laughs> business. It's very much a small town kind of atmosphere. I live two blocks from the school I teach at. Um, and so, and I, you know, I go to church right here in the community and several of my students go to the same church. And so for me to give one of those kids a ride home, that doesn't necessarily mean anything because they might live two houses down, which I have people, you know what I mean? So if you see somebody giving a kid a ride and you could say, hey, I saw you give a Mackenzie a ride the other day. And they go, yeah, her mom asked me to give her a ride home because she was stuck at work, you know, and if there's a valid, legitimate reason. That's one thing. But if you're giving a kid a ride home every single day and when you ask that teacher about it and they're like, I, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't give a kid a ride home or whatever. Those kinds of things. That's what she means when she says keeping secrets. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like Patty said, we, we're trying to encourage teachers to call out those minor violations. And then based on the um, suspected teacher's reaction, that gives you a lot more information than the actual 
um, event, you know, like in the, in the giving the ride home example, if they just, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like this, if they overreact or if they lie about it, those are two enormous red flags. But mm. I actually got into like a yelling argument with my husband last night about <laughs> this. Well, he's a high school band director. He's a charming guy. He's, you know, extremely successful with his high school band. And he was just like, I don't think it's possible to detect grooming or I don't think it's possible to tell the difference between good teaching and grooming. I'm, I'm serious, Patty. He was yelling at me. And, um, he's had, he was, so. well, he was going to say, he has always said, I don't understand how you can say it's so patterned. He has a hard yes. time believing that. So I do yes. kind of get it, but. And he's not alone, welcome... obviously, right? He's no, not alone. I welcome that discourse from him because, you know, we often have people electing to come to our sessions. You know, it's, it's not usually like a requirement to attend at these conferences. They have to choose to come to our session. So I know that our audience is going to be skewed towards people who have experience with this or who already are interested in this, right? So to have my husband, who is really our target audience, right? He's a middle-aged male white band director. Um, he's like the main part of the problem. So when he's he not... Gets, the he's target not, not. range. His demographic, yeah. yeah. yeah, demographic. yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean, yeah. So when he has feedback about our presentation, I actually value it a lot because that's those are the people who we're trying to reach, that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was really upset about, like, how do you tell the difference between good teaching and grooming? And I, you know, all I could say is we have a list of red flags. It's like a medical condition is diagnosed. Any one thing might not be a problem, but when you have a couple things working together, that's when you heighten your awareness and, um, and also this isn't something that we say in our presentations because we can't back it by research, but every time, every time we talk to someone, they say, I had a bad feeling. It was, I could feel it in my gut. Something wasn't right. And I'm not talking about, um, the targets of abuse. I'm talking about the environment, mm-hmm. all the other teachers in that school, the parents, um, even other kids, they just say, yeah, something wasn't right with that situation. In fact, we we were just speaking last week, and after we spoke to the entire faculty, we had an hour with just the three other music teachers, and all of them said something wasn't right with him, but we just thought he was an introvert, or we thought this because we didn't really know anything about his private life, but they all said they had that for lack of a better word, just an icky feeling, like something was not right. But I also, can I circle back to one thing real quick, Megan? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you were saying, you know, well, I hug my students and maybe I should have done that differently. And that's one of our major goals is for you to not feel like you should have done it differently because we want to be warm, loving people to our students in a healthy way. And when we talk to undergrads uh, who are preparing to become teachers, we're very clear about that. We don't want them to have to drastically alter how they interact with students. Um, you should be able to offer supportive touch uh, with the student's permission. Um, it, we aren't suggesting that it be, you know, stark, sterile, and, you know, because the most rewarding part of teaching is forming those close, caring relationships with students, and they benefit so much from it. So because we have, a, you know, these predatory teachers that are um, able to abuse kids because we live in this broken system, that doesn't mean that the rest of the students should not benefit from having loving teachers. Well, and 
can I interject a little anecdote from my own life? Um, yes, please. We have a middle school summer band program that I taught um, before every year before the pandemic. Um, so 15, 16 years, I taught that. And several years ago, I think it was eight, if I'm thinking correctly, uh, it was the day of the concert, and one of our little sixth graders came in and was sobbing. And I don't know this girl. Um, so I go out, and everybody else was down on the stage, and she was in the band room sobbing. And I walked up, and I go, honey, what, what's wrong? And she, my, my dog died. And, you know, I'm a dog lover. And so I said, can I give you a hug? This little, And she said, yes. And so I was hugging her. And I said, what kind of dog did you have? And she said, I have a pit bull. And I have pit bulls. And so Aww. I said, come into my office. And I brought her in and I sat her down. I gave her Kleenex. And we were chit-chatting. And I showed her pictures of my dog. And I said, I'm so, you know, we, I just consoled her as any dog lover would do. Didn't know this girl. That night, the concert comes, this woman comes in and she goes, are you the teacher that was talking to my daughter today? And I got a little panicked. I'm like, because, and I go, yes. And she goes, thank you so much. Cut ahead to about two weeks ago. She was then, she came into my program. She's a, she graduated. She is now a freshman music major in college. And I was a couple weeks ago judging a middle school jazz festival and her dad is a middle school band director Hmm. and he gets up and before we, he is band plays. He said, I want to tell you a story about this judge right here. And he tells this story from eight years ago and how it helped his daughter. And so we do want to have those. And so I'm not saying that like, Oh, look at me. I'm so great. But that's something that affected their whole family, obviously that I didn't Mm -hmm. even realize. And, and, you know, when you have those kinds of relationships and you can, you know, so please yeah. don't feel like you did anything that needs to be changed. You probably didn't. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I, um, something that I struggle with is when we talk about even the label of great teacher, right? We're talking about a person who is an abuser and we say, but they were a great teacher. And I've, I've had to think, okay, like a teacher is someone who cares for their students. A teacher is someone who is, who does not harm, just like a doctor, right? You know, you, as a doctor, you're not supposed to do harm to your patients. And so to call them a teacher, it's almost like they're a predator in a teacher costume, like predator in teacher's clothing. And so, you know, sort of dispelling the fear that now we have to be afraid of, you know, now we have to, as teachers, we have to be afraid or as parents and the community, we have to always be in fear that our teachers are going to abuse our students. And it, and, and there is a, there is a middle ground where we can sit and say, just be logical, like yeah. just be logical. Right. The phrase that we use is trust, but verify. That's the recommendation mm. that we have for colleagues and parents. Um, we don't want, we say in our presentation, these exact words, we don't li- want to live life jaded. We don't want to cast suspicion on innocent individuals. We don't. Um, but that's our goal in our sessions. You know, we throw information at people for an hour straight and it's as much information as we possibly can, because if they are armed with the information of what abuse and grooming actually looks like, 
it liberates you to not live in fear of false allegations, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and, it does. You know, just on a, as you said, logical, one of the things that we talk about, and we, we do talk with pretty much every one of our target audiences, is like one thing, if you want to just make sure that you are above any sort of suspicion or anything like that, is making interactions with kids readily interruptible and easily visible. So in other words, you don't go into a room with no windows, no window in the door, all the time with a kid. If you can do it in a, like when I teach lessons, I do it right here in my office and there's a huge four by four window facing me, you know, anybody can walk by at any time. So it's okay to hug a kid. It's okay to offer advice. And, you know, I'm sure it happens at the middle school level, but at the high school level, we get hit with a lot of pretty heavy stuff, pregnancy, drug use, you know, those kinds of things. And we are those teachers that they trust. And so if we can have those interactions in a place where anybody can walk by, anybody could walk in, anybody can see it, that helps with making sure that you are above reproach. Mm. Let's say um, there's a teacher that notices, uh, you know, there's odd behavior with someone they work with in the building and they go to an administrator and report it. What is a mistake or what are mistakes that administrators often make when it gets to them? Well, we have seen time and time again, and it's also backed by um, survey data that school level, building level administrators are the weak link when it comes to um, the process of handling a sexual misconduct allegation. Um, And by that, I mean, they they surveyed a group of people, law enforcement, teachers, principals, uh, child psychologists, they surveyed them and the school admin rated this topic as less important. Um, And they, they said that they didn't want to devote time to it more than any of those other categories of people, which is astounding to me, but also not surprising, if you know what I mean. Um, But yeah, so to answer your question, one of the biggest things that happens immediately is the school administrator decides to not report it to the authorities and they want to handle it as an internal uh, personnel issue. Um, And the reason that's a huge mistake is because if there is something going on, the principal doesn't have the resources to conduct a uh, criminal level investigation. And all they end up doing is tipping off the perpetrator who deletes all the evidence Mm. and then goes and tells their targeted students to do the same. So it completely negates any sort of investigation. And um, when we talk, uh, we give, we give presentations to music teachers. We give presentations to all teachers. We also give presentations to law enforcement and um, MDTs, multidisciplinary teams. And when we talk to cops about this, they always are saying, we just want the allegation to come straight to us. Um, to, to bypass that, that level. Now, I will say that's in the case of a serious allegation. Like um, if you really, if it's beyond reasonable suspicion, you know, when we get to that mandated reporter level, um, mm-hmm. if there is a, if you're just kind of like wanting to talk to someone about a bad feeling that you have about someone, I think that's more of what you were talking about, right? I I think in any case, like whether you see something and you're like, something is definitely going on or you just even have a suspicion like what, yeah, what, what happens after that when you go to talk to somebody? 
Yeah. Right. And, and the, the answer is the same, I guess. The, the school administrator chooses just not to handle it, um, hoping that it goes away. Um, and sometimes that's, sometimes that's not as malicious as it sounds. And sometimes that's just as malicious as it sounds Mm. where they're trying to sweep it under the rug and protect the school district from legal liability. Um, it just depends on the instance, but we also encourage everyone, um, if you do suspect, um, to just begin documenting right away, document your suspicions and document those conversations you have with people, um, before you report or to help you make the decision of whether or not to report, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you can, yeah, you can start documenting and realize, oh, this really isn't what I thought it was. You know, it can relieve your, your worry, but it can also be like, oh my gosh, this is happening a lot more than I thought. And when I've tried to talk to this person about it, or when someone mentioned something about it, they lied, you know, you've got this documentation. So then when you do make a report, you can show whoever you report to, the, the incidents. And, like, we Mackenzie put uh, a, together a slide, and it shows, like, a phone. You know, on Tuesday at noon, this person went into this room with this person. On Wednesday at noon, they went, you know, and you just start recognizing patterns, and that is really helpful, not not only to law enforcement for the investigation, but to for yourself, like I said, just to see this really is something or it isn't. And I want to circle back to something too, that Mackenzie brought up about um, the school district, you know, either being malicious or not being malicious. Um, I think an interesting thing about my experience is that the same year that my abuse started earlier that year, our theater director was fired. And so in the same year we had this situation um <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to think about now, but it's like I I landed the lead as a freshman in high school. And this man had asked um, me and the lead, who was a junior boy, I was a freshman girl, he was a junior boy, asked us to come down to the auditorium and practice the scene. And there was a there was a kiss in the scene. And I said, how do we make it look like we're kissing is what I asked the theater director. How do we make it look like we're kissing? And he goes, he says, will you just kiss? Um, and I'm looking at this boy, this cute junior boy who's six inches taller than I am. I'm like, he's going to kiss me like, oh my gosh, it's, and this, this boy is very nice. I I do this man. He is now a man. I will say he's a very good man and he was being a boy and this is not. So when he kissed me, he stuck his tongue in my mouth in front of this theater director. And I like pulled back and yelped and I was like, he just stuck his tongue in my mouth. And the theater director laughed. Like, and that, that is the thing that's wrong. That's what I wanted to say is that this boy, he'd been around this theater director long enough. Maybe he thought that was acceptable and that had been the environment. And so that was my freshman year. And I mean, there were all these things that happened with this guy, but even then I didn't want to believe that that was weird. I, I, we'd grew up, you know, grew up in a society where it's like, oh, that was sort of weird, but okay. You know, I mean, I'm going to act like an adult and handle this like an adult because we're in the big leagues now we're in high school. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Everything's, you know, and isn't it such a compliment that a boy would be attracted to you enough that he would want to stick his tongue in your mouth? I do want to acknowledge that part of our society, too, is that just growing up, that being desired and being wanted and loved, that is not not a part of this conversation either, is that instilling these certain values. But anyway, my so my sophomore year, 
this guy went around asking him a very inappropriate question. Uh, and I will refrain from saying what it was, but it was supposed to be a joke, but it was very uh, crude. And so he was fired after this incident. When he was fired, I thought he was fired for saying this inappropriate thing, just for saying this joke that was crude, not because he had done all these other things. And so when they let him go, he was just fired. He wasn't, there was no, as far as I knew, there was no police involvement. Um, and we were not, the students were not um, interviewed. We weren't asked, what else has this man done? It's like they wanted it to go away. And he right. went on to get another degree and do camps with kids. And he went on to go to prison for molesting a child. I don't think the school was being malicious, like you said, Mackenzie. It's that, but they, they wanted it to go away. They weren't equipped to deal with it. And, but what we want to encourage is that you have to deal with it because the consequences are much too great for you not to deal with it. So here's this man. I didn't even identify him as he's a predator. I just thought, well, he's stupid. Why would you do that? And then I compare him to this other man who I don't see at all as being a predator because he doesn't act like this other dude that got fired. That even created this bigger contrast between the two of them. The one I'm in love with is clearly not a bad... It was nothing uh, like that. No, yeah. no, because he doesn't say... He doesn't ask me questions like this dude did. And so it's a whole... It's a whole thing. So I'm sorry to digress there, but it's just... When you said that, I thought, gosh, you know... Isn't that the truth? It's just I think school systems want to believe, okay, this is that we've stopped it and it's not that bad. And you've got to dig. You have to dig because it's too important not to. Well, and I think right now um, the, it coincides with, you know, the start of Mackenzie and I starting the Elephant Alliance is the entire whom, you know, Me Too movement. And the idea of rape culture in this society mm-hmm. and the idea that well, she was dressed poorly, you know, she was dressed kind of trampy, or she was drinking too much. Well, I'm sorry, getting drunk doesn't mean it's okay to be raped, right? And and mm-hmm. I think all of those things are starting to come out now, and women are being a lot stronger with talking about it. And so I think law enforcement is getting better with this. Like I have a, a two really good friends are both retired police officers now, but they're one of the two of the people that I spoke to a lot during this whole research. And they did talk about compliant victims. And like you were saying earlier, you know, the question of, well, were you forced? Well, no, I wasn't forced, but that does not negate the fact that you were not consenting because you weren't either old enough to consent or you weren't in a, in a equally consensual relationship because mm-hmm. of the position of the teacher or the age of your age, all of those things. So, but I do think it's getting better. I do think people are talking about it more. And Megan, when we talk to undergraduate students who are, you know, preparing to become teachers, we talk a lot about age and consent and, um, we put in the screen on big letters, compliance does not equal consent. Mm. Um, and we talk about the adolescent brain and how it's, you know, teenagers are not just young adults uh, or tinier adults. They are actually neurobiologically, chemically different in their brains. Um, and we really try to try to hammer that home in terms of um, how they look at their students. And, and, um, and we also talk about the culture of safety because... Like you were talking about, absolutely, you had a culture in that high school that enabled abuse. 
Um, so we go through all of these kind of like pillars that we want to have in a great culture in a music program or in a school. And we talk about the potential pitfalls um, for students who are trying to establish healthy boundaries with their students. Um, because the culture of the building can absolutely, you know, be fatal or lift up uh, whatever situation you're, you're dealing with. Um, but especially in the case of educator sexual misconduct, for sure. Is that what you were going to talk about earlier when you were going to say something? You wanted to jump in and you wanted to share something. I want to make sure that you get to say what you wanted to say. No, I was actually going to give a shout out to the state of Illinois because you were talking about how that teacher was allowed to, um, actually that teacher was fired, but they went on to get another job. And we see over and over and over and over again that teachers are just allowed to resign. And when they are allowed to resign, they don't have any sort of disciplinary mark on their record because it was just a resignation. And so it makes it extremely easy for them to go get another teaching job, or if they don't get another teaching job, they get access to kids in some other way. They become a camp counselor, or a private teacher, or a soccer coach, or a music worship minister, or a youth group leader. Mm -hmm. And it happens all the time. Um, And (laughs) there are actually, um, they call it passing the trash. And there have been a lot of good efforts uh, from a legislative legislative standpoint in terms of having passing the trash laws. But Illinois really is coming to the forefront as a leader in this area. This summer, a new law is coming into place where if an educator has any sort of sexual misconduct on their record, even if it was not, uh, if even if it did not result in criminal consequences the school district has to fill out this form about the incident and that follows them from employer to employer. If you are hiring someone in the state of Illinois, you have to obtain any forms that exist about those sexual misconducts incidents. Mm. And that's really kind of like the ideal situation that we want every state to have is that it, you know, because it's actually so, so rare for an incident of educator sexual misconduct to result in criminal charges. It's extremely rare. Hmm. Um, and so we want a better system that keeps track of these, um, any incident of misconduct. And that's what's coming to light in Illinois. So that's kind of in the category of progress, good news, I guess. So based on your statistics, it's likely that someone who's listening to this episode um knows a victim of educator abuse or is or has been a a victim, what would you say to that person? We uh, actually, every time we speak to anyone about this topic, we say that that is statistically likely. And the first thing we have to say, the most important thing is you are not alone. And I hope that you get that feeling genuinely from our hearts uh, during this podcast, all three of us. Um, We believe you, we support you. Um, and you are not alone in your experience and uh, at the time of the abuse, and you are also not alone in the aftermath of the abuse. Um, so there are plenty of resources there for you, and the number of people that are available to help you and the number of resources are only growing. Um, so, you know, we have resources on our website, of course. There's, you know, rain.org. Um, but also, if you want to reach out uh, personally to us, please do not hesitate to do so, um, either Patty or I, um, because one of the most beneficial things for someone who has been a target of educator sexual misconduct is to speak to someone who has had a shared experience. 
um, a lot of the resources out there for victims of sexual abuse kind of fall into this category of the violent abuse or the forced abuse. And the fact of the matter is, um, although it could be true in some cases of educator sexual misconduct, the lived experience of a victim of educator sexual misconduct is a lot different. Um, and it has a lot to do with overcoming these feelings of, um, of responsibility. Um, and, um, and like you alluded to before, just, um, the trauma of realizing what happened to you wasn't as you thought. And that can be an extremely difficult thing to process, but it's also a very common experience. And hopefully, you know, if you're listening in, you can take comfort in that and find strength in that as well. Mm. I and and Patty, I want to hear your response on this too. I would like to jump in for one second and just say that the connection part um, is so important. You know, it's um, again growing up in this culture of like, oh, she just wants attention. Oh, she. It's these things that are just not true. Because who wants to be known for this? You know, who wants attention in this way? And if you do. Then, then you obviously do need attention for some reason and you should seek support anyway. Like when people need attention, that's not something to make fun of or to disregard. They need help. I will say that one of the most healing things for me is the more people I talk to that have had this experience and I realize I'm not special, you know, because that's the thing, right? They want to make you feel like you're special and you're the only person that they want to be with or whatever. I would think that it would hurt to hear that you're not, but actually knowing that so many other people have gone through this and the more people you connect with, the more I'm like, you know what? I'm able to move beyond it because I know that I wasn't special. And actually, in this case, it's a good thing. I'm special for other reasons. Like I have my own good qualities, right? And it's not because this man loved me, cared about me. That's not what that's about. And so connection is so important. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, so Patty, what would you say to then a person who knows somebody or is a victim? I think what Mackenzie was saying about reaching out, um, I'm sure, I think that's having a shared experience in anything, knowing somebody else has gone through it, somebody else is going through it. There is something about that human connection with someone else. Um, and uh, I'm sure, I don't know this, the answer to this, but I bet there are support groups for victims of educator sexual misconduct. Mackenzie, do you know if there are? Um, I wasn't able to find any um, in the years that we've been working on this. The best thing that I could find was um, through rain.org, there's a victim connect service. And um, so I imagine that if you could sign up for that, it might, um, it might connect you better. And honestly, that's, that is a huge thing that's missing from our, um, you know, healing response on this. I guess that's our, our next endeavor. Yeah. We'll the elephant alliance. But you know, there is, um, yeah, I mean, why not? We could figure out a way to put, connect people. And, um, but I think, um, like you said, real recognizing that you weren't special in that situation, you are special. Everybody has value and everybody is here for a reason, but what happened to you? And I say it that way, what happened to you, not something you took on, um, it's far too common. And, and if we can connect people and if people, 
and even sometimes just talking to us, I would say there has yet to be a time um, when we've spoken that we haven't had somebody disclose. Um, we, when we spoke at Midwest, we spoke at the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic in, in uh, December. There, a woman walked up to me and she literally looked like she had been punched in the face. And she stood there looking at me and she just went, I was abused. Like, I think that was the first time she actually realized that this love relationship she had when she was younger was not that at all. Mm. And I think um, there are a lot of people who are talking about that now, like the, um, the, this, um, the movie The Tale. Jennifer Fox talks about being abused when she was younger and not realizing it was abuse because she was in love. And she, th- you know, so I think finding other people and, and, and connecting in that way is really vital. And you know what, that is, it's something that did happen to you. You were not in any way, no one who goes through this is ever responsible for what happened. It is on the perpetrator, period. And I also want to add, if I can, to that, just um, if someone is listening who is um, experiencing that or kind of experiencing that doubt surrounding their own memories or something that happened to them, you know, allow yourself grace. Um, it, it sometimes and oftentimes takes a lot of steps to get to, I was abused. Like that moment that Patty just described someone having, it takes a lot of steps to get there usually. Um, and one of the handy tricks that we've picked up along the way is to try to describe the situation that happened to you as though you were reading it in a newspaper or as if a friend had told you it happened. And sometimes taking that step back can give you clarity. Um, and it might take, you know, like it, it takes, like I said, steps like, you know what, that person shouldn't have used their power to, to have sex with anyone. And then it's, oh, that person shouldn't have used their power to have sex with me. And then it, it, you know, it finally gets you to where you need to be. But it's a extremely, you know, a word that we talk about all the time is re-traumatization. Um, and that's very real. Um, so it's not to be uh, diminished at all. Let's say someone comes to you and says, I've been abused. How should you approach it so you don't re-traumatize someone who's been a victim? Yeah. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we talk to... Um, we try to talk to people about what to do if someone discloses to you, right? But in those instances, we're usually talking about if a child discloses to you. But um, we know that it's not often children that disclose abuse. Um, uh, only 10% of people who are abused as children by teachers tell anyone about anything, you know, had happened to them. It's only 10% of kids who will almost accidentally say to a friend or to an adult, of people abused by teachers carry it as a secret with them into adulthood. Um, And studies have shown that the closer the connection is between the abuser and their target, the longer the delay. Um, So it's likely that you're going to be speaking to an adult who is saying that this happened to them. So um, the, the best thing to do if you are a person who is receiving a disclosure of abuse is to keep your own emotional reaction out of it. Uh, that person is grappling with extremely intense emotions and you adding any sort of emotion to the situation is just going to be another thing for that person to try to navigate. So acting, reacting with anger, reacting with pity, reacting with grief is not recommended. Um, if someone comes to you to disclose abuse, we want to just, you know, 
say I'm sorry um, and then, you know, let that person try to affirm to that person that they're doing the right thing by telling, thank them for telling you, um, but try to remain as neutral as possible and um, meet that person where they are. You know, one of the most uh, damaging things that can happen in these moments of disclosure is if someone, um, you know, doesn't meet them where they are and starts using abuse rhetoric and, you know, oh, now let's call the police. Now let's call the lawyer. You know, like that can actually backfire immediately and cause that person to uh, backpedal on their um, on their disclosure. Um, and maybe they never will disclose again because of that, because that, that kind of intense reaction is what they feared all along. Um, mm. Patty. Well, I was going to say, um, I've had, you know, obviously the students that I caught my former colleague with, um, I remember one day, one of them was in the office a few days after he had been arrested and she was really upset, obviously. And she goes, I just, I, I can't, I don't understand, you know, and she was, she's, she's trying to understand because she's being told by the police that he was abusing you. Right. And I said, honey, and I, I didn't know anything. I was just speaking from my heart and what my gut was telling me. And I said to her, I get it. He's a really good guy. Everybody loves him. And he was paying attention to you. Because she was taking on the guilt. She was taking on the responsibility. And I and I said, but it's not you. And even then I knew that it was, I mean, obviously I knew it wasn't her fault. But just affirming that it is the adult in that situation who did it. Now, if you are friends with someone, you know, you're 35 years old and one of your friends says, you know, I just realized that my first love, who is my art teacher, it wasn't a relationship, you know, and because you know that person, you have history with them, you can say, I'm so sorry that happened. And how can we, you know, what do you need from me? That's a great one. What do you need from me? Rather than we can, we can hear the drum do. line. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's good. I'm letting our I'm letting our listeners know that you're not also like playing a musical instrument while we are no, while no. I'm interviewing you. I'm like you probably I'm gonna, could. I'm gonna shut a door though. Let's see if I make it a little better. <laughs> Hit mute, light. Patty. Hit mute. Oh, for the love of God. You know what? I'm enjoying this. I <laughs> Unlike Mackenzie, I am not a percussionist. I play a real instrument. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Oh. Right? I'm a saxophonist, so it would be really hard to talk and play my instrument. But, um, but yeah, I think just meeting them where they are and saying, what do you need? Asking them, do you want to talk about it? Whenever you want to talk, I'm here. Rather than forcing your own... Um, whatever onto them, your own feelings, mm. your own agenda. Neutral for our people listening doesn't mean no emotion whatsoever, like acting like, right, right, right. Like neutral yeah. is like, you're not trying to amp up anyone feeling they're already having enough emotions, but you can, you can listen with compassion and with that kind of accepting emotion of like, you know, I love you. I care about you. Thank you so much for sharing this with me. 
Um, just to clarify, because some people, we may know that, but then other people, they hear the word neutral and may not know, oh, I just need to not show any emotion. And that is triggering. Can yeah, oh is like, oh my gosh, like, please show something. Like, what are you thinking? And so, um, so I just wanted to, to sort of say that on the, on the side there. Yeah, absolutely. But I will also add, you know, like there's not a lot of data on false allegations um, mm -hmm. because of how tricky it is to know what is a false allegation. Um, and unfortunately, tragically, a lot of children who make allegations end up going into the false allegation category because the person that they're telling has that reaction. And then they realize because you're a child, you don't want to upset adults in front of you is an upset adult. And so as a child, you go, oh, no, 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 I was joking. No, it's okay. No, I don't, I didn't mean it. And then it's like, that's a false allegation. When in reality, oh, wow. it absolutely happened. And that child just wasn't supported in the right way. And that's what we, we talk to um, forensic interviewers and child psychologists, and we, we remind them of that. This is next year's marching band season already. This is the life of a high school band director. You start next year, this year. Um, uh, along with that, like Mackenzie was saying earlier, if a child does disclose to you, or even an adult now, years later, and the first thing you do is respond with anger, think about this fact that this person was in love or is currently in love with and now you're mad at this person that I love so dearly so it may not even be like Mackenzie described which is very true of a child going oh I don't want to make this person upset but rather I don't want you to be mad at the person I love so yeah. that is also and that can isolate that can that can again once again it's like this abuser sets up a this perpetual environment of isolation because they want them always to come back to them or always think you know be loyal to them and that and we have to remember these are children we're talking about again i talking about society and culture um because we sexualize children we sexualize teenagers um we like to pretend that their brains reflect what their bodies look like. You know, if they look mature, they look like, you know, oh, she looks, she's 16, but she looks like she's 25. She is not 25. She is a child. Yeah. And so she has a child's brain to put that culpability onto them, you know, as if, well, they knew what they were doing. I mean, in Michigan, I, this blows my mind. And I didn't know this until I was involved um, in this abuse investigation Um but I didn't know that the age of consent in Michigan is 16 years old. It yeah, blew my rough. mind. I, I looked at the detective like, are you serious? He said, I don't make the laws. I said, so a 16-year-old who cannot buy cigarettes, lottery tickets, cannot serve in the military, but any adult of any age can have sex with that 16-year-old. Well, and, and Megan, it's not, it's not having sex with the 16-year-old. As you well know, the grooming started at age 14. What's the difference between that, that birthday uh, you know, the, all the, all the groundwork has been laid, uh, for that person to, to be in abuse, in an abusive situation. But can I quickly say, because you were talking about how our perception of a child is sexualized and this, that, um, we also address in our presentations that educators sexual misconduct, especially when it's portrayed in film and TV and on, in media, it's often romanticized. Um, you know, that movie never been kissed, um, Glee, Pretty Little Liar, all these shows have 20 or 30 year old actors playing teenagers 
And there's often like this scandalous love affair between the teacher and the student. Mr. Holland's Opus, oh my goodness, the, you know, the famous music teacher movie has Mm -hmm. it too. And it really, it really matters because when we watch those things on screen, it affects what we think a teenager should be like in real life. And it also makes us take real life educator sexual misconduct less seriously uh, Mm. because of what we're seeing on the screen. I mean, even in music, as a music teacher, if you think about the police song, Don't Stand Too Close to Me, and there's all of these, I mean, it's a constant bombardment. I mean, like, I think about, I just, you know, Brooke Shields just came out with this. Oh, yeah, Pretty Baby or whatever. Yeah, and she talks about how she was sexualized as a child but she didn't, she just was play acting. But the adults around her, her mother included, let that happen. They knew exactly what was going on. She was a child. And so she was a victim in many, many ways. But I get really disgusted with our media. Yeah. And well, you said it earlier, Megan, you said like, that is not, not part of the conversation. We always are very clear with people that this is not just a couple of evil people at a few unlucky schools. We talk about educator sexual misconduct as a systemic problem. Like it's it's our culture. It's everywhere from the culture in the buildings to the federal government not having laws or tracking systems or anything in place. And it's really it's 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 a systemic problem is the best way to describe it. I think about um the fact that we have a national drinking age, 21. You've got to be 21 in every part of this country in order to buy a beer, right? But you can go to some states where the age of consent is 15. And then there's other places where it's 18. Well, why don't we have a national age of consent? Make it clear. But of course, then, you know, we're infringing on states' rights. No, we're infringing on kids' rights. That's what I feel like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How can people get in contact with you if they just, maybe they just want to reach out to you personally, or they want to learn more about the Elephant Alliance? Maybe they want, they want to book you for a session, have you come talk to their organization or school? Um, how do they get in contact with you? We have a webpage, www.theelephantalliance.com. Um, and our contact information is there as well as information about booking a session. So, um, yeah. And one thing that we pride ourselves on is tailoring or customizing the session as best as we can to our, um, audience. So, um, we, we, we will talk to anyone who wants to listen to us. Mm -hmm. Um, but really, uh, we've been focusing on undergraduate education majors, uh, hopefully preparing that next generation of students. Um, to form healthy boundaries with their students and also be able to detect abuse and grooming in their future jobs. Um, We also talk to school districts. You can bring us in for a professional development day. Um, We talk to music teachers. We go to state conferences. We talk to law enforcement, uh, school resource officers. Uh, If you have an MDT, uh, we can do professional development for them as well. School administrators, um, really anyone who has a concern, we would be happy to, to speak with you about this and get you all the information you need, um, to detect and prevent grooming and abuse. Is there any question I didn't ask you that you wish I would have asked? (sighs) Why are there creeps in this world? I don't know the answer (laughs) to that, but no, I, I appreciate you taking the time to let us come on here and talk to you. Um, and honestly, if any of your listeners want to reach out to us anytime, we, I think uh, McKen- I can s- 
say this is true of Mackenzie, and I hope she can say this is true of me, but we both are pretty good at listening and um, holding people up and, and doing what we can to help these targets of abuse uh, get through it. And we, we, I mean, we do this because we love our kids, we love our students, and then those students become adults. And, and that care and compassion for them does not go away, you know, so. And I also want to add one thing. I know you were joking, Patty, when you said, you know, why are there creeps in the world? But that's the only thing we can't control. Um, we can't control that there are creeps in the world. But the way that we break down this problem, we can have an influence, a positive influence on every other factor. Um, you know, we can, We our goal is to make, uh, we want to be ungroomable. Whether you are a child or a parent or a teacher, if you are in this situation at all, we want you to be ungroomable. And um, we want to empower people to have an effect on their precise environment, their immediate environment. But we also have solutions all the way up, like I said, to the federal government. And so whatever your level of involvement can be, um, you know, there's a way for you to help prevent this. Mm. Thank you for saying that. And we can't wait on the law. It's going to take the law way too long to get around to this. Well, we can, but we can prevent this from happening. This is absolutely preventable. Because grooming, that what happens prior to the actual assault is a pattern behavior that you can see, that you can recognize. With the right information. That's right. That's why you need us to come and speak. That's right. You guys are so awesome. Oh my gosh. I, I'm so grateful that you took the time to, to share this important information. I mean, this is life saving and, um, and life giving. I mean, just even for people to listen to this and be like, I'm not alone. And, and now they have more information that they maybe ever, than they maybe ever had before. And I just feel really honored to have spent time with you. So thank you so much. What you, the work you're doing matters so much and just keep going. We thank will. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Sing Coach Conduct. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact Megan Ferrison on Facebook or Instagram or by emailing the singingconductor at gmail.com.